Hi, welcome back to another episode of Bread and Roses. This is going to be a special episode devoted entirely to the COVID-19 epidemic and its impact on workers. So a little bit later, you'll hear from Margaret and I as we talk to Dr. Lorraine Conroy about how this virus is impacting low-wage occupation workers. And Margaret is going to share her expertise on respirators and how it's impacting healthcare workers. Before we get there, though, we're going to hear from three different workers from across the nation that have been impacted by this coronavirus epidemic. So no, is the big really getting a break. That person suddenly comes alive. They're of that group, not away from it. They have a way of talking, a certain insight that enables them to say things all the others feel but can't express. The same people who don't think they're important, when they, they say sometimes, they never heard their voice on a tape recorder before. So play it back to me. So I play back the voice, and the person says, I never knew I felt that way before. It's also self-revelation. In this segment, we hear the story of a worker impacted by this episode's topic. So, what do you do? My name is Ben, and I am from Chicago. My name is Trin, and I live in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Uh, my name is Jessica, and I'm from San Francisco, California. Okay. Uh, I'm a resident anesthesiologist. I am a restaurant manager for a Creole and Cajun restaurant. I work as a nurse practitioner within an, within an adult endocrinology clinic um, in a large healthcare organization up here in the Bay Area. So my salary per year is around $60,000. Okay. Um, what do I make? As far as um, my salary goes, I make about $1,000 a week. Um, and then after taxes, of course, and insurance, it's less than that. But we do have a bonus program for our management team. So often, I would say probably about five to $7,000 extra a year in bonuses. So um, probably around $60,000 a year. I make approximately 119000 per year salary. Uh, my day from start to finish um, depends. We have multiple rotations that we, um, that we do. We do medical ICU, we do surgical ICU, we do pediatric ICU. But in general, when we're in the main operating rooms, um, we start the day even the evening before. So we'll look up the surgical cases that we have the next day. Um, we decide what kind of material we'll need for that case. And then um, we confer with an attending anesthesiologist the night before. Um, the day of, we usually get there around 6 a.m. We start setting up the operating rooms. We draw up all the medications that we're going to need for the first case. We test the machines. Um, we get out the um, controlled substances for the cases. And then we usually go to a conference at 6.30 a.m. where we learn whatever the topic is for the day. Um, after conference, we go to the pre-op area and meet our first patient. We do a quick physical exam. We talk to them about how they've been feeling, make sure they're there for the right procedure, um, check that the ORs are ready to go, and then 
therapy, give the patient some medication in the pre-op, and you roll them back to the operating room. Um, for the first part of the cases, that's usually the most exciting part. That's where we do the most work. Um, when the patient is put onto the operating room bed, we uh, start to administer medication. We tell them we're going to put them to sleep. We uh, pre-oxygenate them, which means we just put a mask over their face and give them oxygen. And as soon as they are put to sleep with the medications that we give, we intubate them. Um, which just means we use an instrument to open up their airway and slide in a plastic tube that will be hooked up to the ventilator. Uh, once we do that, we do a bunch of other work. We place temperature monitors. Um, at this point, we've already placed all the blood pressure monitors and EKGs. And we just, um, at that point, we place like a, a temperature warmer. Um, we warm them during the procedures. The ORs are kept really cold. And then once all that's done, we hand it over to the surgeons. We're monitoring the patient throughout the case. Uh, and we do about anywhere from three to five to six cases a day usually. Um, and then we just do the same process for each patient. And then when our cases are done, uh, we're done. Or we're on call and we have to stay later into the evening um, until uh, most, of the most of the ORs are finished. Sure. Um, I'll walk you through a typical day that I've had recently, just with all of this craziness of coronavirus. Um, we have gone from a casual dine-in restaurant to a only curbside pickup and delivery restaurant, which are both new to us. So in the past, we did to-go orders, but you would come inside, go to the bar, and um, the bartender would take care of that. Now that's all we do. So my days lately, I wake up at about 5 a.m. trying to figure out how to make today better than yesterday um, and then try to get some more sleep before I go into work. Um, if I'm not working right away, I'm taking care of my sister's kids while she's at work as a nurse. And then when I do get to work, um, basically... It's learning how to change every day. With um, We're adding delivery services. So we started with one, and now we have two. Um, we're trying to keep as many staff on as we can without going over the limit of 10 people. Um, so when I get there, we're just learning everything that's new, what menu items we're out of, what we're serving that day. Um, and then the phone starts ringing, and I just answer the phone, and I answer the computer when there's online orders, and I try to get that to the kitchen, um, take credit card numbers, and then uh, once we get through our, our night, which is shorter now because we're not staying open as late to cut down on costs, um, then we organize all the money and all the credit card slips and um, shut down the restaurant and take notes about what went well, what didn't go well that day, and um, get in contact with our boss so we can let him know how our day went, and then go home and fall asleep really fast and wake up really early the next morning. Uh, so I work um, typically four 10-hour shifts per week, um, and then my days 
are definitely variable. Some of my days are clinic days and other days I focus primarily on supporting the physicians. Um, so I usually uh, get to work around eight o'clock and um, there's usually a little bit of downtime before clinic. So I'll, I'll log into the charting system and check for um, any messages from patients or my colleagues that were sent to me. And we'll work on those, especially the high priority ones where patients are maybe symptomatic. And then um, I'll prepare for a clinic. So usually the visits are back to back, whether they're my own independent clinic or supporting the physicians. And um, when I do support the physicians, I usually will see the patients prior to the doctor and kind of get a little bit of history on how things have been going, what medications they're taking, um, any concerns, and then I'll provide recommendations to the doctor when we kind of huddle, and then we'll go back in together. Uh, so clinic usually lasts till around 3 p.m. or so, and then I do spend the remainder of the day just writing my notes um, and then working on my health messages, phone calls to patients, going over lab results. Um, although it does vary and everything that's been happening with COVID has been kind of um, throwing a wrench in my day-to-day -day routine. So I have been able to work remotely from home a few days a week when it's my so-called um, box or like uh, administrative day. So how, um, I guess, the public can make an anesthesiologist job easier, um, I guess, would be just to, to stay healthy and take care of yourself. You know, a lot, of, a lot of the complicated, scary cases that we have are with patients who have um, scary and complicated medical history. You know, people with um, a lot of, we treat a lot of people with obesity. Um, that can be difficult when giving paralytic medication and we're needing to um, intubate a patient with maybe not so great of an airway, it can be scary to try to intubate that person um, when, um, when we don't have a clear, when we don't have clear access to, to their airway. So that's a lot of people who are coming in for, and you know, no fault of their own, but that's a lot of people who are coming in um, for uh, gastric sleeve procedures where, you know, they're desperate to lose weight, and um, it can be a scary thing sometimes when we're trying to place a breathing tube in those patients. And then also people with blood pressure issues, diabetes, all of these complicated medical issues um, have their complications kind of magnified when they're going through surgery. So, you know, the ideal patient is someone who is healthy, who uh, is active, who takes care of themselves, um, and you know, it's our job to be able to deal with the complicated patients, but sometimes, you know, maybe like 1% of the time, um, the things that scare us are, uh, are the experiences with patients who have complicated and kind of dangerous medical issues to, to begin with. Well, specifically, um, it'd be great if when you call a restaurant, for example, for a to-go order, if you listen to what the menu provides you with as it has a voicemail, for example, ours says, um, please check our website for an updated menu because every day our menu is changing based on what we can have and how many staff members we have to prepare a menu. So it says on there, you know, go check out our menu online so you know and are prepared when you call because the phone just rings constantly, you know, and we want to get to you as soon as we can. But if every phone call takes six or seven minutes, it's really difficult. So just little things like being conscious of instructions and, you know, if it's curbside pickup, that means 
we don't want you in the building. So just come out, out to your car. We'll bring it out to you. And and most importantly, everyone is just so far been being really kind and patient. And I think that's the most important thing you can do is realize people are doing their best to provide something, um, food in my example, or in my case, that is um, important to making you feel comforted and and to remember that those people are leaving their families and their homes to help you out, you know. So just treat them with respect and, and patience. In general, um, patients would be able to make my job easier by um, being patient with our clinic as we do um, adapt to everything that's been happening with COVID-19 and also just the new onset um, unexpected use of telemedicine. Um, we have been transitioning to video visits, but there's been a lot of like technical challenges that come with that. Um, whether it be on our end where, you know, the video or sound's not working or on the patient end. Um, we have a lot of patients that are elderly and don't have internet access at home or, you know, have never used a computer before. And so as we both kind of learn to adapt through this um, unexpected time, please be patient with us. Um, and then also I'd say just one of the things most recently that can make our, um, my job easier is also just kind of trying to limit the whole hoarding mentality, um, whether it be, you know, with personal protective equipment such as N95 masks or medications. Um, we do have a lot of our type 1 diabetes patients that, you know, understandably have a lot of anxieties about running out of their insulin, which is, you know, a life-sustaining medication. And as a result, um, they're asking doctors to order extra more than they're using and so they can stock up. And what I've seen over the last few weeks is this is actually resulting in um, insulin brands being back-ordered through pharmacies, so patients that are actually running out of their insulin cannot pick up their insulin from their preferred pharmacy, or, you know, we have to work with the insurance company to try to petition for coverage of another brand, which is a whole nother saga, and I mean, makes things so much more complicated in this entire scenario that we've been facing. Um, and so I'd say definitely, you know, being patient as we adapt as our patients adapt and also just trying to limit hoarding um, and only stocking up on what's absolutely necessary. Something that makes me proud about my work, you know, I, I like uh, the aspect that I like, you know, I like talking to people who are nervous about having surgery. I think I have a good bedside manner and I think I can put people at ease, um, especially in the pre-op area. That's, you know, everyone is nervous about surgery and I feel good when uh, I make someone, you know, feel calm about the upcoming procedure. And um, I just, you know, like interacting with people, however brief, you know, we have maybe five to 10 minutes before each procedure to talk to the patient, but that's something that I like to do. And I feel like, you know, I'm good at and, um, and makes me proud. Something that makes me proud about my work. Um, well, I guess I would say that as a, as a staff, we've really had to adjust things lately, and I'm I'm proud that we've been able to problem solve and and really think about how we can make things more efficient. But then I'm you know I'm also proud that when I answer the phone, I get to talk to people who maybe don't have other people to talk to. 
and sometimes the conversations are really hilarious. Um, I, I like that. I've always liked that about my job, but it's usually face to face and now it's a little different, but I'm proud to, you know, provide people again with food, but also with just a little interaction that everyone probably needs right now. Um, I'd say that one of the biggest things that makes me proud about my work and as, you know, um, cliche as it sounds, is just seeing good patient outcomes. I'm pretty new to being a nurse practitioner and being um, one of the main providers that dictate treatment decisions for my patients. And recently I've been working with quite a few women with um, gestational diabetes or a history of diabetes that are pregnant. And, um, and I've had one mom that was able to deliver her healthy baby boy. And so just seeing outcomes like that just really helps me remember why I do what I do, um, even during the challenging times that we face such as these last couple of months. Um, and then also just seeing, I mean, again, with diabetes, patients that have been able to improve their glucose readings and, you know, maybe they were on multiple daily injections of insulin and really, you know, nervous, understandably, about having to give themselves shots multiple times a day, but then being able to see progress, glucose readings improve, and then be able to go off of insulin back onto oral medications and just how much their quality of life improves with that progress. So, um, yeah, patient outcomes um, and, you know, bad out outcomes happen too, but, um, and that, you know, makes things very challenging also, but trying to focus on the good outcomes that occur as well. Okay. So in terms of health and happiness, uh, the worst part of my job, I would say, um, probably has to deal with the time that we have to spend with each patient. I think that's true in all aspects of medicine, but particularly um, anesthesia, we have to move pretty quickly between cases to keep the ORs moving efficiently. And, um, you know, it's it's difficult when you have to keep a lot of things um, at the front of your, the front of your mind um, when you're rolling a patient back or when you're prepping for a surgery that's going to happen uh, after the one that you're currently doing. And so that can get stressful. Um, and, you know, I think during the course of a day, you kind of have those, have that stressful feeling and it can build up over the course of a week, it can build up over the course of a month. Um, and I think you have to know kind of how to de-stress and take care of that feeling and um, kind of decompress at the end of the day um, in order to deal with it effectively. In general, um, as far as health and happiness, the worst part of my work, um, you know, before all this is probably the hours and being away from some family on weekends and that's when most people can get together and do things. Um, and health-wise, you know, I'm in a lucky position because I'm a salaried employee, but for a lot of people who work in the restaurant industry, they can't go to work, they don't get paid. So if, you know, your back hurts or, or you got the sniffles, a lot of times people suck it up and they go to work and and it's not good for their own health, but it's, you know, also not good for the public's health, especially now. So um, you do a lot of sacrificing because you have to go to work to make money. One of the worst parts of my job, I've already kind of touched base on that, and just health and happiness is it's definitely um, scary to be a provider, especially a new clinician. 
when um, I, I previously went from working at the bedside um, where I was a bedside nurse. So I wasn't really the one that was dictating orders for patients or treatment decisions to now being the one that dictates treatment decisions and um, really kind of paving the way for my patients and, and having a huge role in their outcomes. And so that can be really scary. You know, I have a lot of really great colleagues that I turn to and mentors, but it's still kind of a daunting task when you're a new provider. Um, and so self-care really makes a big difference. And then also just, um, you know, with, tel with telemedicine and um, that we're all adapting to and the sudden onset of an influx of my health online messages where patients can send us emails through the charting system, that, that can definitely be very um, overwhelming seeing all the messages coming in. And um, also just seeing the anxieties that patients are experiencing with everything that's happening with COVID-19. So just, you know, really trying to have good work-life balance and good self-care so that I don't burn myself out being a new clinician. Um, so how has coronavirus affected my work? You know, um, on a normal day in a normal month, we'd be doing probably oh, sometimes 50 to 70 surgeries a day. And with this pandemic, we're doing, you know, average about five to 10. So all elective surgeries have been canceled at my hospital, which means, um, you know, which is a, a good thing, which is a great uh, policy decision um, on the part of the, the hospital because they're trying to limit the time that um, physicians spend uh, in the hospital in general. And then for people who are coming in for elective procedures, there's no real reason that they, um, for, for a procedure that isn't, you know, affecting their immediate, uh, immediate life, they shouldn't be exposed to this virus. And so, um, you know, with a limited amount of cases, we need limited amount of staff right now. And so far, um, which is a good thing, and hopefully this holds, but so far, they haven't needed, um, like in Italy, they haven't needed to use the operating rooms um, for makeshift ICUs yet uh, at our hospital. And so that's something that um, is, you know, they're doing planning on, but so far we haven't reached the surge where we're going to need every available space for ventilators and for patients who are overflow from a full hospital. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's really affected every aspect of um, hospital life and physician life in general. And who knows, you know, how this is going to, um, you know, normalize and um, go back to the way it was. But currently, it's almost unrecognizable. Coronavirus has changed my workplace um, dramatically. Um, just because we, again, are a completely to go and delivery restaurant, which are two new things for us. So, um, that's been very interesting and, and a challenge, but my bosses have been really patient and we've been really working hard to refine everything that we do every day. Um, one thing that I didn't realize that I guess maybe I thought it could be an issue in some like weird ap apocalyptic movie, perhaps. But um, a couple days ago, there were there was a burglary in my neighborhood where I work, um, and the and the fella who did it was in my restaurant staking out the place prior to breaking 
into another place a couple blocks away. And I had seen him, and I had seen him leave, and I had seen him go to another store across the street, and I thought that he had worked there because he went to the back entrance. And um, it turns out he broke into another place and stole from them. And um, that's something I hadn't thought about really as like a reality that people are going to be really in need or they're going to take advantage of um, people not being around. You know, I was I was in a vulnerable vulnerable position there, and uh, I hadn't really thought about ever being scared in the middle of the day. And I'm not scared, but it's definitely something to think about now. So, you know, there's a lot of unique challenges that arise every day and just see what happens and do the best you can. Um, I'm fortunate to have lots of coworkers and um, bosses who care about us, but, you know, there's not as many people around anymore. So you're kind of left to your own devices a little bit more than usual one of the biggest impacts was to kind of see our clinic suddenly um, quickly be forced to um, adapt to utilizing telemedicine more. Um, we, you know, we haven't closed clinics, but we have suddenly rolled out video visits, which would, they were going to happen, but this kind of forced us to roll them out a lot sooner than we anticipated. And I mean, literally it happens within a week. We learned that we were rolling it out. We got trained got the computers um, updated. And um, it's definitely been um, interesting to see telemedicine have such a huge impact on patient care. Um, so we are now have, making it so that essentially all visits that do not require physical contact or physical ev evaluation will be converted to video visits. Um, and as one can imagine, a lot of our elderly patients don't have home computers. So then if that's the case, um, we are using phone visits instead. But it, it's, I mean, so much can get lost without that face-to-face -face contact. So it's definitely been a challenge. Um, and then also just, you know, working from home um, is something that is on a lot of our minds. And we've been working with our team to try to kind of create a schedule where we can work from home a few days a week. Um, but we do need some coverage for clinic because it's open. And so there are a lot of um, anxieties from my colleagues and I about not being able to fully work from home. And I mean, we hear about patients that are um, potentially asymptomatic with COVID and there's always at the back of my head fear that, okay, maybe I'm gonna catch COVID, not even know I have it and then spread it to my loved ones who are older and considered high risk. Um, so definitely I, I, I'm feeling more anxiety just about being in healthcare. Um, I'm not working inpatient, but I do have a lot of uh, friends that work in emergency rooms with bedside nurses, and there's so much anxiety about uh, anxiety about um, being properly protected. Um, I have one friend that works for a large academic institution, and um, in the beginning stages, they were working with patients that they were not even aware were being um, ruled out for COVID and just weren't being properly protected no N95, no negative pressure room. And, you know, there's, of course, the risk that you were exposed to COVID-19. And how can you care for your patients if you can't protect yourself? So, um, yeah, I mean, I'd say that telemedicine and um, also just increased anxiety are definitely the two biggest changes that I have noticed throughout this last month. Yeah, the thing that really spooked me, um, the thing that started 
to scare me. You know, we we had heard the virus was coming out of China. We at this point, I think we even knew that there were cases in in Washington, but hearing from the physicians in Italy about what they were having to do, uh, I think I first looked at a Twitter uh, account like early March, and it was um, an ICU physician talking about how they were converting operating rooms into uh, makeshift ICUs. So basically, they were already out of space. They were already out of ventilators. They were using the machines that we use for surgery for to, to put people, to keep people alive, basically. And at that point, it was like, wow, you know, this is, this is extremely serious. Um, they're using every available space in a hospital to keep this surge of, uh, surge of patients alive. And, you know, the scary thing about this virus is you don't really know how it's going to affect one person to the next. You know, you see uh, initially we heard that it was, you know, people who were older that were most affected, people with pre-existing conditions that were most affected. But one of the first things that I remember was hearing about um, the Chinese physician who was the one to call attention to this. And he was, I think, early 30s, an ophthalmologist. You know, he, he shouldn't have even necessarily been in direct contact. I'm sure they were um, I'm sure they were having, you know, physicians from all stripes uh, interact with patients, but he, he died of this. And um, that was, you know, that and hearing the stories out of Italy, that was the point where I was like, wow, this is going to be something different and something extremely serious. Well, if I can see the restaurant industry changing at all after this, um, I would have to say that as a restaurant employee, I feel like customers will value us a lot more. That's one perk. I mean, I'm I just feeling so much more appreciation from people than I have in the past. And I think, you know, they just forget sometimes like, well, I'm, I'm paying for food and I'm paying you to do this. But, you know, again, like I said, food is a food is a gift from the heart for, for a lot of people. And so for people to appreciate you know, a nice warm meal, like that's going to change. But as far as worker conditions go, I'm hoping, you know, everyone, not just restaurant workers, but everyone can get the time off they need if they're not well or if, if they need to take care of a family member, um, you know, physically or mentally. Sometimes you just need a day off and and that should be provided for everyone. I don't know that a lot of restaurants will come out of this with a lot of money or a surplus to provide that. So I personally think that would have to be government mandated and, and, uh, you know, <laughs> everything's kind of up in the air when it comes to that. So I, I, I hope that someday we get to that point, but I don't see the restaurant industry thriving financially in a way that they'll be able to provide that anytime soon you know signing up not signing up but like you know choosing this career path um, as a nurse and a nurse practitioner I, I knew that I was going to potentially be on the front lines and even though I haven't been you know working directly um, with inpatient on the COVID-19 floor I, I do still feel that since I'm on the front line and I knew that this is something that I would be signing up for um, whether it be a natural disaster such as a 
massive earthquake or um, a pandemic, um, I knew that I would be one of the people that had to be there when times got tough. Um, but it is, it is scary because there is a lot of uncertainty at this point. Um, and it does feel like, you know, my colleagues and I, we do have to continually advocate for ourselves to um, be properly protected. I mean, I think the, the general attitude amongst my colleagues and I is like, we're still kind of mentally preparing ourselves for the worst. Um, and I mean, every day we get email updates about new things that have been announced. Now they're offering um, hotel rooms for um, providers that work inpatients and have, um, I think, like less than 10 hours between shifts. So you hear things like this, like, okay, now they're offering hotel rooms. Like, how bad is this going to get? Um, and then, you know, you hear stories about PPE shortages and ventilator shortages. And I mean, that's happening in New York. And even like in New York, there isn't enough space in the morgue. So they're having trucks outside of the emergency rooms to hold bodies. And so I don't, I don't think we're at that point yet, but we're hearing stories about New York and we're kind of seeing ourselves turn into a New York demo line. But again, I have like, since I'm not working inpatient in, a ho in the hospital or in the emergency room, it's so hard to say, but this is just from my, the emotions I'm feeling and things that I've been hearing from my colleagues. Reinforcing the importance of self-care for um, those of us that have been affected by COVID-19, and I guess, I mean, all of us have been affected by COVID-19, but those of us whose line of work has been affected by COVID-19, where it creates increased anxiety, you know, whether you're in the food industry and your restaurants suddenly shut down and you're getting laid off to, you know, being an Amazon um, delivery worker. I mean, all of these lines of work definitely put you um, at risk and, um, I mean, they're, they're essential, but it's, you know, there's so many different anxieties that come from the different scenarios that we're in. And I think just self-care and taking care of ourselves, taking care of our, taking care of our loved ones, um, keeping our mental health in check is just so important during these times. Hi, Margaret. Hey, Julia. How's it going today? It's good. It's day, hmm, I don't know. 700 or 15 of this lockdown, I can't tell. <laughs> yeah, we are coming to you from our houses individually today. Yes. And, and we want to talk about coronavirus and what the, what the implications are for that. And particularly, what are the implications to workers? So usually we talk about what is going on with workers in general and particularly in their industry, but this coronavirus has impacted workers in our economy on a massive scale. So we kind of want to talk a little bit more about those different people. Um, I've been working in my research looking at restaurant workers and low-wage workers a little bit, looking at the different stressors in their work, which is obviously maximal stress at this point. So we'll talk about that. And then, Margaret, you've been talking a lot about respirators lately, huh? <laughs> Yeah, I've a my expertise is in respirators, and I think most of the time people think that like that doesn't really exist, and then all of a sudden something like this happens, and I get I don't know maybe a dozen questions a day, a day about how are people using the respirators, how they can extend supply, what healthcare institutions should be doing. So it's been pretty productive the last couple of weeks. Right, and we also have uh, another colleague of ours, uh, Dr. Lorraine Conroy. Uh, Lorraine, you want to say hi and tell us 
a little bit about yourself and your focus of research? Sure. Um, thanks for having me. I'm a professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and I direct the um, NIOSH-funded Total Worker Health Center, and ours is a center for healthy work that's focused on precarious employment and the impact of precarious employment on health. And um, as and we've been doing this for about four years now, but um, obviously with this pandemic, there's been a lot of heightened, as Margaret suggested, a lot of heightened awareness about the impact of this particular pandemic on precariously employed workers as well. And Lorraine, before we move on, can you define what is precarious employment? So we have, there's no standard definition of precarious employment, but we've been defining it as low wage or dangerous or um, lacking benefits, lacking a voice in the workplace, not being able to speak up when things are unfair um, and, you know, or any combination of those kinds of things. Yeah. And low wage, I don't know. I think there's also not exact definition, but it's um, about 10 bucks an hour. Uh, lower than 20000 a year about that? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I mean, it's really, we are trying to push for work that actually pays a livable wage. Right. So, you know, that um, just even just meeting your basic needs is not uh, sufficient for um, people to be healthy. Yeah. Well, so um, let's start this conversation talking about uh, healthcare workers, you know, we have all these men and women going to the hospitals, taking care of us, taking care of um, very sick people, putting themselves at risk. They can't come home. They can't uh, keep themselves separate from their work. They're called essential. So, what are some of the what are some of the protections that we have for them, and what are the challenges that we're facing in those protections? Well, I think that we've heard over and over again that the supply chain is limited. So I know some of my colleagues who are expressing like frustrations with just being able to have to determine who to test and who not to test. You know, they have someone who comes in who meets all the criteria, but like realistically they can't give them a test because they don't, they'll be fine if they go home. And then the bigger issue I think that I've heard a lot about is you know, all of this surrounding personal protective equipment. And we knew that this was coming. We've, there's been a lot of research done on in the event of pandemic, we're going to be woefully unprepared in terms of supply of respirators. And um, so we, um, I think CDC has come up with three separate sets of guidelines. They're conventional contingency and crisis, which was like a huge, so, Way, a number of ways that an organization can reduce the reliance on respirators in order to try and expand the respirators we have. And But we're continuing to see people um, rely on calling for all of these homemade masks. I think, think that went viral last weekend. And I just want to say that there's been a, some research done on this and these masks are not protective at all to from inhaling any type of particle that may contain coronavirus. So yeah, I can, believe that it can might. you Can you just break down the different types? So a respirator is a mask. It's those things you put on your face. There's oh. surgical masks, um, which are just like that 
piece of paper? I don't know. Could you just break down the different types of respirators? Yeah. So there's surgical, in general, there's like surgical masks and then there's respirators and surgical masks are certified by the FDA for use in hospitals. And they have some like antimicrobial capacities and some like anti-fluid re fluid resistance. But they're mostly case, like, for protecting. With blood. They're mostly for protecting the patients from the doctor, right? Or from the medical right. Like they were designed originally, I think, for use in surgery, where the doctor would wear it, and then they wouldn't contaminate the patient as they were breathing, or, you know, if they coughed, they would keep the patient who might have been open cut open, like safe. So they weren't really ever meant to protect people okay. and from then there's inhaling. This, like next level and 95s. Right. right, and then there's respirators. And so they come in a whole variety of types, but the one that we're hearing a lot about right now is N95s. And those um, healthcare uses what's called a filtering face piece respirator. And these are certified by NIOSH and they're certified to, um, be protective against much smaller particles. So the filter is certified in a different way where the smaller particles are guaranteed not to come through the filter. And these are very specially designed using different layers of filter material, but also they have put in what's called an electret filter, which captures any kind of charged particles, which allows for increased efficiency of the filter while not increasing the breathing resistance. So in theory, if you like stacked together, I don't know, 10 t-shirts, you might get the resistance, but like it would be impossible to actually breathe through it. So these ones that people are making the like hand sewing, or even just like I've heard some medical professionals wearing um, just like bandanas and stuff, they don't filter out anything. Right, that's exactly right. So while you're breathing, you're just breathing in the virus if it's there. Well, it's a combination of they have less capacity to be filtering and also an N95 respirator actually seals to the face. So I like to remind people that air is always going to take the last, the path of least resistance. And so if you were, if you don't have something that physically seals to your face, air is, when you breathe in, air is just going to come through around the around any type of filter. Whereas the N95 mask, it works because it seals to the user's face. And so then when you breathe in, air is forced to go through the filter material. And so why are we hand sewing them? Is there, there's not enough of them? I mean. Yeah, I mean, healthcare institutions are saying that they've completely run out. And I don't know if that's true or not, but by hand sewing masks, I don't think that's benefiting anyone. I think that it probably can might be even causing more harm than good because people might have a false sense of security. I like to relate it. We know that there's some literature that like people who ride without without a bike helmet, we know that they like their riding behavior is a little bit safer. They ride further away from cars. They might be more likely to obey traffic signals, and like you can assume that the same might happen if you had on one of these cloth masks that were homemade. Like all of a sudden you think you're protected, but in reality, you're probably not. So it's just a good reminder to try and reduce and reuse respirators 
the supply that we have before we move into any other anything else. I know we're already seeing a ton of doctors and nurses getting sick, and that's just really sad. Well, so why don't, and this maybe is a question for both of you, but why aren't we prepared? Why don't we have enough respirators to treat these thousands of patients that are coming in? Well, ordinarily, we the supply issue, it's not an issue. So it's just a matter of trying to ramp up that supply. I know that because we produce things in this worldwide market, the production maybe had problems early on when the virus was in China. And the other thing is something like this happens, we know that this happens every one, every hundred years or so. So we knew it was coming, but it's hard to prepare when you have no idea, is it gonna to be today or is it gonna be 15 years from now? And so the national, the government has what's called a national stockpile where they do keep respirators, but to, it would just it was going to be cost prohibitive to store as many respirators as would be required during a pandemic, especially if like every year or so some of them are expiring. So then they have to change those out. And so it just becomes like super costly to the government and no one was really willing to spend that money in advance. Lorraine, do you have any other think, ideas? Yeah, I think there are some structural problems here too. So we have a you know, we've moved our entire economy to a just-in-time. So the manufacturers of these material, of these finished products, the respirators, don't hold any inventory in their production facility, right? It's a just-in-time. They don't want to have any excess inventory. And the supply chain is, the entire supply chain is that way. So all of the materials that go into making that finished product are also being produced in this just in time. And some of that production has been shut down globally earlier on from this. So getting the raw materials to do the final assembly here became more difficult. So I do think there are some structural economic barriers to ramping up production in a time of need. Is and that's it, true, I think, for everything. We're seeing it acutely for respirators, but I think that's true for everything. Is it also that we just sort of always underfund or underestimate public health needs? There has been a concerted um, under uh, you know, investments in public health, and I think it's a you know it's part of the we've all learned this in public health school that when we are doing a really good job, nobody notices because nobody gets sick. And so then it's like, well, why do we need to spend so much on public health if nobody is getting sick? And then we end up in situations like this where, again, the, the state and local health departments also have no surge capacity. Right, which kind of brings me to the, my our next topic, but I feel like I was reading this book and they were, the book was about this love story during World War II, and it was saying that in love, we really see who we want to be, and then in war, we see who we really are. And I feel like that's becoming so, like the way we treat workers and the, all the things that we've been sort of sliding by on um, is becoming so evident. So, you know, a lot of the workers that are suffering right now are these low-wage workers um, because they don't have the the same standards of work that most of us have, like benefits and paid time off and um, 
even just having a wage where they can not live check to check. So Lorraine, how does, how does COVID, this epidemic, how is that impacting these workers? So I think it's impacting them in a whole variety of ways. So a large number of them are not working right now and have no income, um, which is probably the group that's the you know most impacted um, in terms of just daily living. But the ones that are working generally rely on public transit to get to work. And they um, are told, you know, his, you know, over the years, not just in this pandemic, but, you know, that they have to come to work sick because they don't get paid if they don't come to work. So we do have people who, until they're, you know, acutely sick and can't work, are continuing to work because, they're so dependent on their job, keeping their job and keeping that income. Um, and then I think there's a um, group of workers that work in conditions that continue to put them at risk. So even if they are not sick, if their coworkers are, then, um, you know, that we've heard stories and we're seeing, you know, cases in these industries that are ramping up in response to this. So warehousing in particular, um, where, People in those um, settings are getting sick, and there may or may not be enough um, spacing, social distancing, um, uh, parameters for people to actually take time off if they need it, or um, for clean, time for cleaning in between shifts or periodically throughout a shift. Yeah, um, I was collecting data with restaurant workers leading up till everything shut down and uh, I collected some samples right after they shut down all the restaurants in Chicago and just talking to the different people because it's not a lot of people and I don't know about low-aged workers in general but a lot of restaurant workers it becomes your community becomes your family and that part of that is isolating and has its own issues but you know this woman I was talking to I was like are you going to be okay she's like well, I don't have a paycheck. And I was like, well, what about your boyfriend? She's like, he works at the same restaurant. What about your roommate? He works at another restaurant. Like, these communities are just sort of being blown apart all in one day, all in one, you know, short period of time. Yeah. Right. So I think that also leads to um, the concentration of people in need. So, you know, this um, low-wage work is – um, different across the country. I mean, in some parts of the country, um, low wage might, what we would consider low wage in a big metropolitan area actually is sufficient to um, survive. But also the concentration of the number of people that have those kinds of jobs means that local resources are stretched thin because, um, you know, Mayor Lightfoot announced yesterday that they were going to um, give out housing vouchers in some way or rental vouchers and you know they're going to give out a thousand or two thousand and that's you know is a huge amount of money but at the same time it's a drop in the bucket based on the need for people to pay their rents this month uh, based on how many people in Chicago have lost their jobs how many people in areas like this work in jobs that are low wage enough that they don't they do live paycheck to paycheck missing a paycheck means missing the rent payment. Yeah, and I think as well, um, and 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I think unemployment benefits are based on that your your take home, like your taxable income, which a lot of restaurant workers make. Um, you know, they'll work two or three shifts that are extremely hard, but they'll make all their money for the the week in a few shifts. And that's usually the only shifts they can get, you know. So a restaurant will have, you know, you'll, you'll get a couple good shifts. And that isn't encompassed into unemployment benefits, right? I think that's right. So people that work in um, certain industries are not, eligible for employment at all if they're considered independent contractors or gig workers, although there is some effort to expand unemployment to those groups. And then it does depend on whether you were working full-time or in in restaurant work, the definition of full-time is complicated. And then it depends on how much money you make. And again, theoretically, restaurant workers are supposed to make at minimum, minimum wage, but we know that that's not always the case, particularly if you're not working on what you describe as a good shift. Um, so I do think that there are gaps in the safety net programs that we have as well. And then undocumented workers aren't covered at all. Yeah, so how is that, are there any, are there any, is there anything going out to undocumented workers? Cause you know, undocumented workers pay into social security, they pay into the employment benefits, like everything that we're now uh, relying on, or a lot of people that are are relying on it now, like undocumented people still show up with a social security number. It's just not theirs. So they're still paying into all this stuff, but they're not getting any benefits from it. So is there any conversation about that at all? Um, not at the federal level. I think there are some efforts, again, at the local level to um, try to expand benefits and um, try to figure out some, again, supplementary um, safety nets, but they're mostly um, not-for-profit, not government-based, you know, so food banks and others like that are concentrating their efforts towards people that have been displaced without access to other supports, but um, it's very past work, and, um, and I think it's, Again, because they're concentrated, you know, undocumented workers are concentrated in certain areas. They're in big cities and they're along the border and they're in some um, agricultural air, you know, um, labor intensive in agricultural areas like California. Um, and again, they're not uniformly distributed where a community might be able to rally and help, you know, a small percentage of people that live in their community that fall through the cracks well through the rest of the cracks, um, but they're concentrated. And again, the idea that local resources are going to be sufficient to help them is probably unrealistic. Yeah. And I don't see any efforts at the federal level, given the immigration um, policy of the president and others in the um, Senate. And the, so I just don't see that they're going to be helped by this. So I think it is going to hit some communities especially hard and undocumented workers or one other immigrant workers who even are here legally, as you said, they have tax ID numbers, but they don't have social security numbers um, unless they're permanent residents. And therefore they're also not eligible for many of these benefits that are being talked about. Yeah. And I think, 
that because um, the additional sort of piece to the low wage work is the lack of benefits. So most low wage workers don't have uh, employer sponsored health insurance. Uh, so Correct. they're they're having to pay that out of pocket, which in the scheme of bills, uh, that's probably going to be one that gets pushed off. Um, and then people just don't have paid time off. And that includes not only restaurant workers, but also these gig workers. So Uber drivers, um, a lot of warehouse workers. Uh, all temporary workers, all um, almost, you know, a, a large number of low-wage workers are by statute allowed paid time off now in Cook County. But again, the enforcement and the um, access to that is restricted in a lot of ways. I mean, there's just a lot of barriers for workers to even access those benefits, which are pretty small. Um, and then, I mean, going beyond even this low wage worker group, because health insurance is tied to employment for a large number of people that have health insurance, people that are getting laid off may also be losing their health insurance at a time when health insurance is becoming, you know, more and more necessary for most people in this country, or the potential large, you know, need for uh, insurance is increased pretty high right now. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Um, and so I think it does highlight again the weakness in our healthcare system where we've tied so much of people's survival to employment. Yeah, because even if it's not this catastrophic of a recession that we're about to get into, it still could be something like 2008 or more, um, more kind of foreseeable uh, mass layoffs. Yeah. Yeah, I think the ramp, you know, we shut down sort of overnight in many cases, but starting up won't be an overnight thing. You know, so it's, 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 um, people, you know, a large number of people lost their jobs all at the same time, but those people will go back to work at varying points in time. And it may be in different places and in different industries and in different jobs. And so, um, you know, this isn't going to last just the time that we're told to stay home. Well, so how, speaking of this sort of ramping back, let's, you know, <laughs> maybe not talk about a timeline because nobody really has any guess on that besides our president who says it's going to be in a, a week um, right it'll be over by easter right <laughs> can't wait for that easter brunch <laughs> um what what do you see changing about the way that we work and the way that we um treat workers the way that we provide for workers and or the way we prepare for these pandemics do you see anything changing as we sort of reposition all of these pieces in this new economy that we have to basically build from scratch at this point? So I think there is an opportunity here to restructure work in a way that um, is more equitable and just than what we have now. I don't know if I'm optimistic that that will happen, but I think we have as you started out or stated at the beginning of this, that 
you know, we're seeing all the cracks in what we think, what we've been told is, uh, you know, the greatest economy in the world, right? And and we're seeing how we're seeing all of the places where that's turning out to not be true. And so the question is, are the people, are enough people willing to try to change that coming out of this, um, this you know, crisis? Yeah, I was reading, um, I can't remember, I apologize to whoever wrote it, but they were talking about how we, we sort of prepare uh, for the things that we can see. So um, after 9-11, everything was shifted towards funding to anti-terrorism funding. Um, after Katrina, it was shifted towards FEMA and uh, emergency preparedness. Obviously, now in the interim, we're shifting all of our funding towards preparing for these epidemics. But um, once we get past this and something else comes up, we'll have a totally different revenue. You know, we'll push our money towards something else. Margaret, so do you trying. see do you see potential for change within the healthcare industry? For um, I I do. That's think good. That well, I just think that all of a sudden everyone recognizes the need for some sort of reusable respirators in healthcare situations. So I know that there has been some initial pushes before this to try and lean that way, but no one really was buying in. And now I think all of a sudden everyone's going to realize like, oh, that could really, that would have really helped if we had put that in place earlier. So I'm kind of hopeful that healthcare situation healthcare institutions will move towards reusable respirators so that we don't fall into this crux again. Where 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 they work. Obviously there are some situations where a reusable respirator doesn't work. Surgery is operating rooms are one of them because we really want to keep the operating room as clean as possible. So it's sometimes best to have, you know, clean clean supplies there. Do you think too that we're you know, there's all these mass movements where people are clapping for healthcare workers as they come home from work, and I I feel like, especially in these conversations about Medicare for all, everybody's kind of downplaying how essential these workers are. Um, you know, I had to wait how long for my doctor, and my doctor does such and such, but now I think with this new sort of view on how essential these people are, they're saving our lives and saving our society. Do you think too that we'll kind of maybe give them a little more attention when we start to allocate funds? Yeah, I hope. <laughs> I don't I'm not very optimistic about um, Medicare for all coming out of this. Yeah. But I don't necessarily I do, mean I am Medicare. optimistic that there that we can make some changes to the healthcare so why why aren't you ladies optimistic? Both of you said I'm not too optimistic, but is there anything? Um, well, I think there's two. I mean, there's a lot of reasons. One is we've structured an economy and a governance system that clearly caters to people who have means, and those are the people that have been the least affected by this. So while this is affecting many, many, many more people than, um, say, low-wage work or lack of paid sick leave affected people before this pandemic, um, it still isn't 
necessarily reaching the broader um, electorate. So, um, you know, as much as I see, you know, there's we need a ch a structural changes in things. I'm also seeing, you know, on social media, you know, still repeated sort of the rhetoric of the president, and you know, again, the divisions in the country on how, um, or even just what we observed in passing this stimulus, the differences between among people in terms of how much of this should go directly to lower wage or middle income Americans versus protecting large corporations that have shareholders. And, you know, that the solution to that was to put more money in as opposed to choosing one or the other. But, you know, that um, doesn't mean that go, we will, that, that the more um, egalitarian, I guess, approach, getting more low wage and middle income Americans made whole will prevail um, when we come out of this crisis. And so I, I guess I would like to see things change. I think there's an opportunity here, like I said, to there's quite a few, large numbers of people now that know what it means to not have a job suddenly, to not to be worrying about when their sick leave benefits or vacation benefits. Are. So who may still have income, but you know are counting the days to when that might not be the case who wouldn't have thought about this at all before. Um, but at the same time, I think um, it would require a change in leadership. And I just, I don't know, we've disenfranchised so many people from that decision-making process. Yeah. Right. I also think that, like, um, I know that the way that the schools are off, they consider them, like, whenever there's an act of God, these are act of God days that they don't have to be made up. And so I kind of wonder if everyone will just say this was just something that was totally unforeseen and, you know, we couldn't have prepared. So, like, there's no real reason to make any long-term changes because it'll never happen again. This is like a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Right. But I was just listening this morning, actually, to an interview on NPR with an author who was talking about and sort of predicted this, not exactly this situation, but this thing about, you know, the more humans there are on the planet and the more we encroach on wild areas, the spillover disease outbreaks are going to be more common. So that we can try to say this won't happen again, but, um, but you know, the predictions are this will happen again. Right. Right. But until we start seeing it happening more and more, you know, there, I don't, an impetus to make long-term changes to our policies yeah well with climate change and you know we're going to definitely see massive shifts in economies around the world sooner than later and we'll have to respond in, in different types of fashions i think i'm i'm slightly optimistic because i'm a naive <laughs> like bleeding heart but <laughs> I, you know, there's, I think if workers strike while it's hot right now, um, like the warehouse workers, Amazon warehouse workers organized to get paid time off. And then Whole Foods workers are threatening to strike to get paid time off. I think if these workers, because there, there's a lot more uh, low-wage workers, there's a lot more healthcare workers, there's a lot more people that are uh, put in danger by the neglect that we've 
sort of systematically ignored for a long time. Then there are these people that are still, you know, getting their margaritas delivered and everything. So I think like if we can if we can connect and we have this point of reference forever, you know, to bring us back to the fact that you know, that's a powerful I think that's a powerful message that we can bring into all the changes that we go. So, you know, that if we're talking about paid time off five years from now for restaurant workers, we can say like, you know, this this is the reason why we saw it. We all lived through it. So I don't know. I think we could we could really use some structural changes and I think that's evident to most of us, at least people that are uh, willing to explore that and I think that we could capitalize on that. Well, I hope you're right, Julia. Yeah. We just got to make I it through so this. I hope so, too. Yeah. I mean, we are, I mean, I do think, like I said earlier, there are opportunities. I think there is a, you know, more people are talking about things like paid sick leave and employer-based health insurance than any other time in my career right now. So I do think there are some opportunities for that. Yeah. I'll try to end on a more opportunity, uh, um, positive <laughs> note, I guess. Yeah. I think that's a good place to end. So, Lorraine, thank you for joining us. And, Margaret, I miss seeing your face. Maybe we'll get together for, you know, the next one or something. Yeah, hopefully this, this calms down at some point. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you, and be safe. Thanks for listening to Bread and Roses. If you have any questions or would like to call in as an expert, send us an email at breadandrosespod 